0: everybody. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this lecture. I don't know how many of you have been to the previous lectures. Can I just ask, I'll do my own quick vote. How many of you have been to previous lectures in this sustainability series?
1: You don't need to use your CDs.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, how many of you would class yourselves as on the environmental wing of thinking? Isabel was asking this question. <laughs> Roughly speaking. Okay, right, we're ready to go. That was just to get a little take on the audience. Uh, just one other question. How many of you are students at the LSE? Not many, so most of you aren't. That's, that's, it's great to have students at the LSE, but it's great to have lots of non-students of the LSE. Um, we're going to start by doing a little press-button... Uh, quiz thing which for which you need your CDs and a lot of you seem to be very well clued up on that um, if your answer to the question is yes, you hold up the white side and somebody counts do you count, Seema? Who, who picture does picture. the counting? Picture picture. Oh, they, okay, right you'll all be photographed with your vote so we won't be able to cheat on the counting and then if your answer is no then you hold up the red side. This will only take a couple of seconds. So, your first question is up there. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's not. Do you want me to do it? <coughs> yeah. Okay. Did you arrive here by public transport? Very good. Thank you. Second question: Do you consider carbon emissions when you buy food? Okay. Clearly, it's the time we started the carbon. All right. Thank you, everybody. Um, I'm Anne Power, I teach at the London School of Economics, I also do research here but I'm a very actively engaged person and I've been on the Government Sustainable Development Commission for nine years so it's a real pleasure for me to have met Isabel in her work in this field and to be able to chair her lecture because like you I'm hoping to learn a lot from her. She's a very experienced person, Uh, she learned Russian at school. Um, she has always been on the green side of the world. Uh, She worked in Kazakhstan uh, when she was young, before she became a mature person, and uh, had a fantastic job there doing something that probably wouldn't meet all of our approval, helping uh, the oil and gas sectors to attract inward investment. But it did teach her a lot about attracting investors, which she's putting to very, very good use uh, and has put it to very good use ever since, including, I'm sure, in Kazakhstan, trying to attract investment into the more environmental, more sustainable, um, more earth kind um, investments that we so desperately need. And as um, Isabel was explaining to me before we began, unless we can change the investment patterns of the banks away from current patterns towards something that preserves and protects much more carefully, um, then we're in for a lot of trouble. So she's going to tell us uh, how. <coughs> <laughs> Thanks very much.
1: I guess when we talk about low carbon London, the first thing that people think is, you know, it's going to look something like the picture on the right. And then the next thing they think is, well, that's not possible, so we're never going to be able to get there. You know, that's, that's sort of a relatively nice picture of London on the left. And you could pick a lot of less attractive pictures of London. And this sort of bucolic image is helpful in one way, because it's quite inspiring, but sometimes it's quite unhelpful, actually. And when you look at, let me just pull this up a bit. Yeah, people look around at what they're actually seeing, things like power stations, know, yeah, motorways, landfill. They just don't believe that a low-carbon future for a very old, built-up, complex city is really possible. And it's certainly not straightforward. I'll explain why I picked a picture of Swan in a second. The main point I want to make is really basic. We can deliver a low-carbon London, and I'll talk about how we can do that. In every sector, major energy savings and new forms of energy generation are achievable. This is not about new technologies. They're nice to have. They're useful. The mm-hmm. ones we've got we need to roll out, but it's not about inventing something that doesn't exist already. It's about rolling out what we already have. And it's not about targets. We've already got several layers of targets. We've got targets in London. They've got targets at national level. The boroughs have signed up to national indicators on carbon. And even if Copenhagen had been truly successful and we had another set of targets, we still need programs that actually deliver carbon reductions on the ground. And that's what's really missing. And it's difficult to do, and that's why it's missing. And People talk about you know, swans paddling really hard underneath and looks really peaceful on the surface. So that paddling just isn't happening at the moment. But we need it because we need to have something that looks very easy if we want individuals and businesses to actually take these things up. Why do we need to do something about this? The obvious reason is the carbon agenda. Do we really have to change? The green line on this chart shows where London's carbon emissions are projected to go under a kind of business-as-usual scenario. Now you can project whatever you want, but basically it doesn't get you to where we need to get to. The blue line shows where the national government's targets are in the Climate Change Act. The approach that we've taken in London is to actually take a carbon budget approach, which is what was set out in Nick Stern's report, which basically says that you have a certain volume of carbon that you can emit by a certain period of time. And we've just allocated that out for London. That's why you see a more aggressive trajectory um, on the London targets, which are seeming increasingly aggressive the closer 2025 gets. But there's lots of other reasons for doing something on the carbon agenda, not just climate change. Um, and for a lot of people the climate change argument simply isn't enough to get them to do something about it So you simply have to tap into these agendas And I think one of the interesting things which Anne's comments earlier were sort of alluding to is um, quite an interesting moment in the green movement generally and the environmental issues generally where the language that green issues are adopting is language of things like leverage, financing payback periods, and a lot of people who have been working on environmental issues for many years feel sometimes quite uncomfortable with that because it seems like a sellout at some level. But the fundamental issue is that we're not going to get the scale of carbon reductions that we need unless, to some extent, we accept that sort of language. So other reasons to do things are the energy context in the UK. You might have read about in the middle of this decade, people are projecting brownouts. Is the energy infrastructure that we need actually going to be delivered in time? Is the investment actually there? And it's still touch and go. We've got an energy security issue. A lot more of our energy comes from foreign-supplied gas, which obviously has certain risks associated with it, and the long-term trend in energy prices is up, so all of that means that the traditional way of supplying energy is being thrown into question anyway, irrespective of what you might think about climate change. In London, we've got a huge fuel poverty issue. Under the government targets, actually 10% of London's households are in fuel poverty. We actually think that because of the cost of living in London, it's closer to 25%, which is a really extraordinary number. And uh, winter fuel payments are extremely expensive for the government and don't solve the problem. They only postpone the problem for another 12 months. Air pollution, you'll probably have picked up, is still an issue for London. It's improved dramatically over the last few decades. It's projected to improve very significantly. But just as an example, on NO2, which is one of the two key pollutants that we still have in London, where we're violating European limit values, we've actually got about a third of those emissions come from heat that's being generated or heat that's used in buildings. Um, So there's strong links between the carbon and the air quality agendas, which are often not recognized. On the waste side, London produces 20 million tons of waste a year, of which 4 million is produced um, through the municipal waste streams, that's your homes, my house, and 50% of that is landfilled. It's a huge missed opportunity in terms of energy recovery, and obviously it produces methane, which is 20 times more damaging than carbon. The other big reason to do something about this is job creation potential, economic growth potential. I mean, conservatively, you could talk about 10 to 15,000 jobs created in London over the next 10 to 15 years and that is really a very conservative number if we get these programs moving at the pace that we want to and that's associated with 3.7 billion pounds worth of gross value add in the economy so that's net economic value going into the economy and that's only if london gets its sort of fair share of the low carbon economy so how do we actually do that this is a picture of Dongtan eco-city in china which many of you may be familiar with And um, people can just about buy that you could build a low carbon or zero carbon city from scratch, um, which is what this is. It's a greenfield development for three quarters of a million people to live in. But that's nothing like the challenge in London, where you've got a centuries-old city, about 8 million people, 3 million homes, twelve billion pounds spent on virtually only fossil fuel energy every year, 27 million trips a day, over 2 million registered cars nearly 3,000 businesses registered. So the scale of the challenge is just completely different in the London context. And if you look at our carbon emissions, the key point here is that 3 quarters of our emissions come from our building stock, of which 80% will still be around in 2050. So we've got quite stringent new requirements, both in the London plan, but also in the national guidelines on new build but that's only going to relate to a very small percentage of our overall building stock for a very long period of time. So retrofitting London's existing buildings and making them more energy efficient is absolutely essential. The share of our footprint that transport represents is very small relative to a lot of places, but obviously still opportunities to reduce that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the programs that we're actually running in London, but I just wanted to say sort of generally across the board, what kind of approach are we trying to take? So our Total focus is on practical programs that deliver real results that people can see on the ground at scale and pace. So this is not about 100 homes and showcasing new technologies. It's about how can we actually reach those 3 million homes? Because if you believe the graph earlier, then that's the kind of scale of ambition that you need to have. We've got unprecedented level of resource going in from London's side, 100 million pounds on direct climate change programs. And that doesn't count things like cycling, or the hybrid bus conversion program, which are funded, um, I'm counting as as separate. The key things that we've found in trying to design these programs is they have got to be absolutely hassle free. They've got to be as easy as doing nothing or arguably easier than doing nothing. And they need to be upfront free and that's something we're still struggling with. And that goes to the financing point that I was talking about earlier and I'll come back to that. And Boris talks about, you know, we need to stop overdosing on gloom and I think it's a great um, way of thinking about it. Telling people that you should feel bad, you're not green enough, you should really recycle more, all those things are true, but they are not the way to motivate people. I mean, think about if you were selling people trainers or shampoo, you wouldn't say, you know, you're a bad person if you don't have these trainers. You try and motivate them by the kind of great person they're going to be if they buy your trainers. And that's the kind of thing that we need to tap into. It's a sad reality of life, but it is the way it is for most people. And just to illustrate that point, this is a chart that the Energy Savings Trust produced and apologies if you've seen it before. The, um, the x-axis shows people's household emissions and the y-axis shows vehicle emissions. What's, and the ST did this massively complex analysis to look at sort of segmenting people into, I think it's 11 different groups, But what's really interesting is that the people, all the green blobs are people who would affiliate themselves with with greenness. And they think that they're living green lifestyles and want to think that they're living (laughs) green lifestyles. And they're all in the higher emission part of the grid. So a lot of people who have a perception that they're green are actually much less green than people who don't associate themselves with green issues at all. So you've got a complete inversion of what you might expect. So the challenge is telling people who kind of pride themselves on recycling. We're not using plastic bags, That actually they're driving huge cars in, un- in uninsulated homes and taking long trips to uh, wherever it might be for holiday. Skip that, although it's interesting. So there's four kinds of things that we can do. One is procurement for ourselves. So we're a small part of London, but we have 900 buildings and 8,000 vehicles, and that doesn't count our bus network. And we can run programs, and that's sort of the 100 million I was talking about earlier. We have got strategies and planning powers, that, and we put out things like the London Plan, which do influence the market directly. And then there's the kind of broader trying to influence the market, um, championing certain things, which has a remarkable impact, even though it's based on nothing in terms of statutory powers. So, what are our key programs? If you remember back to that pie chart earlier, Um, Building energy efficiency is a total priority for us in London as it would be for virtually any other major city that's highly developed already. So that's three quarters of today's emissions. The next thing is low carbon energy supply, so 50 percent of the carbon reduction opportunities on the supply side and then sort of moving towards a zero emission transport system. We say moving towards because it's still a long way off, admittedly, but the technologies are coming forward and we want to make sure that they're rolled out as quickly as possible. So on the building side, we've got home retrofit, public sector building retrofit, and we do work with the private sector on their buildings. On the energy supply side, decentralized energy, which I'll talk more about in a minute, and uh, what we call banning the word waste. So waste is a resource. It's not a problem. And how can we restructure the industry in order to be able to um, recognize that? And then on the transport side, supporting mode shift low carbon vehicle technologies and efficient transport operations often because we do a lot of work on electric vehicles and people say well isn't it more important to get people out of cars and into public transport and to hit the kind of targets we're talking about you have to do all of those things so you have to convince people to move down the carbon hierarchy uh, for transport but for those trips that are still going to be in a car which realistically a chunk of them are going to be then we've got to get people into low carbon vehicles. So I'm just going to talk really briefly about each of them and I'll try and keep it short and just rattle through so we can have some questions and rather have a little bit more of a discussion. So we're really proud of our HOMES program because it is very difficult to do this. As you probably know, we've got 33 boroughs and I think some of you come from sort of a governance background (coughs) um, and, uh, you know, trying to coordinate 33 boroughs of different political persuasions is not to be underestimated as a challenge. But it's the largest ever home retrofit program in London, and it's, it's one of our top priorities. We've done a set of pilots that have been very effective. We're doing 10,000 homes at the moment. We're going to be doing 200,000 homes in the next 12 to 18 months. We have a target of 1.2 million homes by 2015. And for each home, we're actually getting about up to about a ton of carbon saved, and on average, it's about 0.8 tons, which maybe doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, that's about 10 to 20% of your footprint. And one of the reasons is that we've uh, taken this 10 easy measure approach we call it which is basically guy comes to your door and he'll just install everything that he can install in your house quite easily so that's things like radiator panels draft proofing energy efficient lights and they do it for you they don't leave you the light bulb because people will not take the light bulb and actually put it in the light fitting so um it's all sort of you know just stand aside and the guy will do it for you it's an area-based approach which we've looked at a whole range of different programs Um, Some of you might know about the program at Kirkley's. It's been very effective, and we've spent a lot of time with them developing the program on that basis. Um, What you you find is that whilst people claim that they want to do things for green reasons, they're actually very motivated by whether their neighbor's done it. So if you do a street-by-street approach, then people tend to sort of feel a bit awkward if they haven't done it. Um, And that's actually a very effective way to get take-up. There's lots of like, little things as well about this thing. It's, it's all into the detail of the design that makes the difference on the take-up. Like, we pay our surveyors by survey completed, not by hours worked, because if you pay them by hours worked, they'll come to your house from 9 to 5. Everybody's at work, right? That's fine, I'm going to go home. But if it's by survey completed, they'll make a point to come by when people are actually home. It's little things like that that make all the difference. The second thing I mentioned was the Public Sector Buildings Program. You don't really need to read all this stuff, but basically it's um, quite an innovative approach, although if you're not into the world of ESCOs, you probably wouldn't know very much about it or maybe even care. It's a so-called performance contracting approach where the energy savings are guaranteed. So what that means is that the ESCO that's delivering the works actually guarantees that the energy savings will materialize, whether or not they actually do materialize. And there's two reasons that matters. One is that it's a safer investment for you as a company but secondly, it's more easily financeable. It means that if a bank gives you 100 to make an investment in this and they know that that money, whether or not the technology works, is going to be paid back, they're more likely to invest money in it. So again, it's sort of relevant to the financing discussion. We're doing this on our own estate, but the interesting thing is that we've used this European procurement approach, which basically means that any public sector building in the UK can use this exact framework so they can use our contract. Um so we're only 1% of London's buildings, but the public sector is 25% of London's buildings and obviously if you think about buildings in other cities using the same approach then you're starting to talk about significant carbon savings. Whereas the GLA buildings alone, nice to do, it's important to walk the talk, um but it's not going to change the world on its own. This is just a nice picture of uh, London at night and it shows how much energy is being emitted through lighting. And I'm just going to use it to mention that we do a lot of work with the private sector. Obviously, we don't control things like building regs. In a lot of other cities, the mayor will have control over building regulations. And we have zero powers in this respect. So all we can really do is um, give them awards you know, come and shake Porsche's hand if you cut your carbon, those kinds of things. They're actually very effective programs, and we've found we've got um, a program called the Better Buildings Partnership with a lot of the commercial landlords in London and something called the Green 500, and it's one of the best value-for-money carbon reduction programs because you don't have to do very much to get some of these big companies to start to make carbon reductions. So it is an area that we, we do work in, but it's challenging um, because of the level of control. So the next area you'll remember was energy supply. Um, basically, we've got a target to produce 25% of London's energy locally by 2025. This is just a picture of something we call the London Heat Portal. And it's, a, and it's an energy master planning exercise that's starting with mapping where are our heat loads today. Um, and anybody can go on it if you're so inclined. Um, And you can drill down and see exactly your area and see where the heat loads are. So one of the problems in the past is that we've come up with ideas for combined heat and power plants, for example, and then we have to go out and sell it. So this is trying to give people the information, developers, energy companies, and others, to say, here's where the heat loads are, and therefore you might be interested in doing projects in this area. And we've actually already had over a dozen Responses from people saying, "Oh, we're really interested in using this information. We're going to put, you know, we're going to start developing a project there." So it's sort of in the space of trying to unlock the market um, rather than just taking action ourselves. Having said that, we are working on some of our own projects as well in this space. This is a picture of the London Thames Gateway heat network. The UK has one of the lowest rates of um, of district heating. And local heat generation in all of Europe. And there's sort of a perception that it feels a bit Eastern European and clunky. Um, But there are definite opportunities in London. It's not appropriate everywhere, but it is definitely appropriate where we've got wasted heat. And some examples of that are Barking Power Station. It's not a brilliant map, but you can kind of see it on there, which is basically using energy to generate power and just throwing the heat out. So they want to take the heat that's produced in that process and actually feed it in to heat people's homes. For example, in Barking Town Centre, we can see all the sort of mark 13 over there. Incinerators are another interesting opportunity for London. We've got three big incinerators in London, or we're about to have three big incinerators in London. Um, we've got two already. And none of them, all of them produce electricity, but none of them produce heat. They basically just throw away the heat. Um, so that's one of the things that we're exploring as well. And we do, apart from all the sort of enabling and master planning stuff, we actually fund a number of decentralized energy projects directly. We've got a new fund called JESSICA, which is a 100 million pound fund joint with Europe, which two-thirds is going into decentralized energy projects. So I talked about banning the word waste. Basically, the vast majority of London's waste can be used in some form or another. Um, the LSE had a fantastic project on reuse that we were just talking about which I was aware of. And roughly 2 billion of London's 12 billion pound energy bill could be provided um, uh, through energy recovery from waste. So in other words, waste could provide about um, 2 billion of that total energy demand. Uh, We've got something that was recently set up called the London Waste and Recycling Board, which the mayor had chaired. He's now appointed a new chair. It's 84 million pounds over three years, and it's intended to invest in new waste technology. So this is not about spending money on a new landfill site or a new incinerator, it's about new technologies that are different ways of handling waste and generating energy from waste. London's current performance on waste is, you know, pretty appalling. We've got splits roughly 50% of our municipal waste goes to landfill, 25% to incineration, 25% is recycled, so we're the worst performing region on recycling. There's a reason for that, which is that half of our households are flats and for anyone who lives in flat or has lived in a flat, you'll know why, Um, because it's very difficult to recycle when you live in a flat and the provision is very poor as well. So that's something that we're trying to tackle through the municipal waste strategy. And the other problem in London is that all of the boroughs collect their waste individually. So in other words, there's no alignment across the 33 boroughs, and it's not something that we can do anything about apart from bemoan it. Um, But something like the Waste and Recycling Board is an interesting opportunity to start to tackle that. Last, last area, transport. I just wanted to put this up because a lot of people, there's a perception that taxis and buses cause all the carbon emissions because people see sort of big engines and smoke billowing out the back, and this is an well, educated audience on the subject, so I'm sure you all know that's air pollution, but, um, but what's interesting is private cars are about half of uh, carbon emissions from transport in London and three quarters are from road transport. And interestingly, if everybody drove the most efficient vehicle in their class, you'd save a third off of private car carbon emissions. So this isn't about driving a different car, it's just about taking one that looks identical and basically having one that has a bit of a smaller engine, which arguably in London you can't really benefit from powerful engines anyway. The other thing on transport, a whole range of things that we're doing. Obviously, you'll know the mayor's a keen cyclist. We're converting the 8,000 strong bus fleet to hybrid, converting traffic lights to LED, very difficult in this country because of the standards for LED. Um, In the US, it's quite common, but here it's um, a long road to hoe. Um, We have issued a sort of pre-procurement on the underground to see whether we can use the underground's purchasing power on electricity to generate new green tariff electricity, um, which is a very interesting exercise. The Underground is the single largest buyer of electricity in London. And then we're really pushing on electric vehicles. We think it's a technology whose time has come. We've got a target of 1,000 electric vehicles in our own fleet by 2015 and a 20 million pound commitment to further EV rollout, particularly for the charging platform where there just isn't investment coming forward at the moment from the private sector. Lots of people interested, but not at the scale that's needed. So we've got a target of 100,000 EVs in London by 2020 or earlier, hopefully. I just wanted to touch on a few issues that aren't specifically about low carbon London. I mean, adaptation is obviously about climate change, but not about carbon emissions per se in the direct sense. Um, So I just wanted to mention it because we're going to be putting out the public draft of our adaptation strategy imminently. And um, I think my general sort of thoughts on adaptation are, if people see it as a sort of 100 years from now issue, I don't need to worry about it, because like, it's about some floods that might or might not happen in 80 years time. So what we've tried to do is link it to Londoners' experience of extreme weather today. So we have flooding in London today. There's thousands of Londoners have flooding in their homes from surface water flooding already. We've had you know, major droughts and heat waves. And so it's trying to make it real for people and saying, this isn't just about tackling some remote possibility, it's about dealing with problems that we've got today. So the kinds of things that we're putting in are, we've got a target to increase um, green space in central London by 10%. And the reason is, apart from it's nice to do, uh, it's actually going to offset the projected temperature increases in central London over the next 100 years. So it's quite interesting link between the sort of public realm agenda and the adaptation agenda. We've got a target of 2 million new trees in London. Sounds like a big number, but if you just planted trees at the rate they have been planted, taking out the ones that are being removed or die, that would be deliverable. So we just need to make sure that we continue on that trajectory. We're creating something called the, well, hopefully I have a better name than the Green Roof Fund, but trying to sort of catalyze green roofs in London. And we're taking a much more neighborhood-based approach to flood planning. Again, just trying to make it real for people rather than this is something that government needs to deal with. It's an act of God. It's nothing to do with me. I haven't talked much about new build because, as I said, it's not a huge priority from a carbon reduction if you just look at the sheer numbers from a carbon reduction standpoint, but just to mention the London plan has very tight standards on new build, and um, this is just one example that we're putting in Um, that's actually an LDA project, So, so there's tighter standards in London than there are in the rest of the country. Olympics I'm not going to talk about but everybody always asks about it so I just put in a picture of the Olympic Park so if anyone wants to ask a question about it then you can and uh, talk about the green aspects of that Um, I'm really second to last thing I was going to say was you know we talked earlier about the low carbon economy talked about the jobs creation to read that stuff on the right is just to show that we've actually done a bottom-up exercise to say where do those jobs come from because there's a lot of talk about the low-carbon economy but what is it really and what's really the opportunity for London we're not going to be building massive wind turbines in the Thames gateway so realistically where are we actually thinking this economic value is going to be created and really the interesting thing for London I think is the combination of scale with London's role as a sort of premier global financial centre and how do we actually get scaled-up programs financed by London's banks um, and VCs? So as I've been alluding to, and we've got unprecedented levels of funding on this, and we've got already got more leverage in than we've had previously through things like this European funding that's come in. But pace and a very piecemeal approach and planning issues for things like waste are huge issues. I mean, we're absolutely not seeing the pace on these programs that we need to see. And it's like wading through treacle most of the time. Um, so we're doing our best, but the 60% target has always been something that we can deliver a big chunk of. Government and the boroughs need to take action and individuals and businesses to deliver that as well. And it's just um, when you look at the urgency of the issue, it's quite frustrating sometimes. Interestingly, we just did some um, analysis to estimate if you wanted to deliver low carbon London, what does that cost? And the rough investment is in the sort of 60 billion pound territory. Now, that sounds like a big number, but it's only three or four cross rails. So that feels to me like probably worth it. Um, And also, virtually all of it has a commercial payback period, by which I mean these are things that, forget the planet, you would invest in them anyway if you were just looking at it from a purely economic standpoint because of the energy savings that are generated out the other side. In some cases, it needs to be de-risked a bit, because these are a bit new technologies, new approaches. So that's where we're trying to put our money in. But this is basically about using our funding intelligently to try and get leverage from the private sector. And this is just more like a blind you with science sort of thing. I mean, we're, we're putting a lot of hope into this thing that we call the London Green Fund, which is a way of spending our $100 million in a much more intelligent way we invest into our programs as investors rather than um, as grant funders. And um, so that's the basic approach that we're trying to take across the board, not just on some of the programs, but across all the carbon reduction programs. I just wanted to say one word about London as one of the world's cities. Many of you will have seen these stats, but 50% of the world's population lives in cities. That's actually increasing, expected to be about 80% by 2050. 75% of the world's energy is consumed by cities, 80% of the greenhouse gases. So if we can prove an approach that works here, even if it's just on one of the programs, that can then be rolled out to other cities. Obviously, we'd love to be successful on all our programs and roll all of them out to other cities. Um, Then there's a huge opportunity there in economic terms, but particularly in carbon terms. So that's our website, and uh, very keen to take questions. Thank you very
0: much. Well, that was a fantastic scuttle through a huge amount. So you're allowed to ask loads of questions. We want no speeches from the floor, please. Just. Questions. Okay? But if we take a few questions at a time, that'll give us a chance to get lots of audience participation. Yes, could you stand up and say, just briefly say who you are? It's just easier to hear you. You don't have to if you don't want to. Hi, my name's Sue Wheat. Um, I'm a journalist, but also I'm very active in my local area, which is Walthamstow, Waltham Forest. And we have a really big problem with the council. I'm sure it's the same with lots of other people, um, but I just wondered what your advice was in really helping people to help change the council's attitudes and make them more speedy and proactive.
1: On in what respect?
0: On environmental, uh, you know, progress from the very small things like all of the segregated we- uh, recycling has disappeared to you know what's the dramatic things that need to happen, like retrofitting all our Victorian houses, or you know, what type of uh, energy is being planned for the borough. Okay, <coughs> another question. One well, right um, at the very back.
2: Hi, um, Jody here from UK Aware. Um, we organize a show, um, it's a Green and Ethical Lifestyle Expo. Olympia. Um, the last show we found that you know the, the visitors we had were interested in all the, you know, the fashion, the low carbon vehicles we had there. All these different aspects of everyday life. But um, they also needed um, inspiration on how they could help to use their networks to drive change. So any, any ideas on that ready?
0: Okay. Loads of questions. Another one here. Sorry, I'll come back to you.
2: Grant from Grayling Communications, you're talking about waste to energy it seems to be a big part of your plan. Uh, this technology exists, uh, what is the hold-up in implementing it?
0: Okay, and then there's Young.
2: Yeah. Hi, Laura from Lead International. Um similar question to Jody about networks uh, you mentioned about sharing the lessons from London with other cities, and I just wanted to know if you have any specific examples of where that's happened through some of london's successes already.
0: okay, let's give Isabella a chance to answer those then we'll take another lot. Very okay. good questions
1: yeah, I'm not sure how much I can help i mean what, what we're trying to do with um, with the boroughs is basically we've we work jointly with them on all the programs, and it makes it a lot more difficult, just not due to any fault of the boroughs, but, you know, when you're trying to do things with 30 people rather than one person, it's a lot It's a lot harder. So what we do is offer the programs, offer funding associated with them, and we hope that by doing that, people, even if they're not that interested, will start to come forward, because usually money is a good way to get people interested in subjects that they're previously not interested in. So the homes program, for example, this year we'll be doing 2,000 homes in every borough, So You know, hopefully things like that will just start to unlock some of that. Um, The other thing is on the waste front, I mean the landfill tax is going up by 8 pounds a year and so boroughs that continue to send their waste to landfill are just going to start to find that the economics don't stack up anymore and they're going to have to look at alternatives, so that's one of the things that we're looking at through the waste strategy, but I'll do some digging as well and find out what we can do on our side. yeah, I mean, I think the, pub- the public sector is is traditionally poor at communicating in an effective way with people, and then you've got this, like, complete transformation of how people communicate um, with Twitter and all these kinds of things, and, you know, so now we're even crapper than we used to be, <laughs> so um, uh, we are trying to remedy that. We've got a couple of things in the pipeline, um, including some of the consultations that are coming out. We're trying to do it in a much more interactive way, rather than saying, like, here's the strategy, read the 200 pages and tell us what you think. We've got, like, a two-page pricey, and then just post, like, a Twitter comment on the website. So, you know, hopefully some of that will help, and people can link through to that page and those kinds of things. But, um, you know, definitely we're starting from a kind of poor position, but we're, we're trying to get into that space a bit. Any thoughts you've got, I'd be happy to hear about that. Um, and just while it's on that subject, <coughs> the question about international cities we're a member of the c40 which is the 40 largest cities in the world working together on climate change we've we initiated this thing on electric vehicles to basically get as many cities as possible to sign up to actual numbers of electric vehicles that they're going to buy because the manufacturers aren't making enough of them so they're starting to come onto the market in commercial quantities next year 2012 which is good but they need to come on in even bigger volumes so our thought was that if you know Whoever Chicago says they're going to buy a thousand, we say we're going to buy a thousand. Once you add those up, you start to actually have an impact on the market. It's not joint procurement in any legal sense, but it's a joint exercise to try and drive prices down and volumes up. So that's been quite effective, actually. Um, also, the public sector building retrofit program that we've got, we're actively promoting to other cities in the UK, and the core cities have actually just um, said that they're going to adopt it and roll it out to their cities, which is fantastic, not least because it helps us in our discussions with banks to see whether, you know, once they see a much bigger pipeline, what they're prepared to then put money into it. Um, on the waste-to-energy front, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a part of the plan, but it's not a huge part of the plan. It's, um, it's, you know, one of the bigger contributors to the carbon reductions that we need to get. I mean, you could ask that question about any of these technologies. You know, loft insulation is hardly a breakthrough, you know, development or a high-tech development. We've got a million uninsulated or under-insulated lofts in London today. So everybody who's got a loft like that should arguably be going out and getting it. Loft insulation has got to pay back about two or three years, so you'd be pretty crazy not to put it in. But people aren't doing it, and this is the same thing across the board. And businesses are no more rational than individuals, or maybe marginally more rational <laughs> than individuals. You know, much though you would expect to see the opposite. So, what we're trying to do is there's been a lot of um, reluctance about some of these technologies, sort of like. Oh sure it works in Sweden but obviously physics are different here so you know, maybe it wouldn't work here okay. um, so there is a lot of that and there's a lot of conservatism that needs to be overcome what we're trying to do with the Waste and Recycling Board is to focus on a few demonstration projects just to say okay here's an example it actually works it didn't fall over blow up and then once you've got that that makes a big difference in terms of getting it um, rolled out elsewhere. So th- that's the best that, you know, again, it's helpful that we've got some funding now that we can actually put into things like that. Because just sort of um, exhorting people to do things, you know, hasn't been effective in the past on the waste front in particular. Okay.
0: Yes. Oh, loads of hands. Right over there. We'll go even quicker on this lot of questions, please.
2: Leon Marco, how do you intend to insulate the 7 million homes in London that don't have cavity walls, which is the real prize for energy saving?
0: Very good question. Like our house. <laughs> yes.
2: Hi there, my name's David Collins. Um, and I have my own business in London as uh, a sustainability consultancy. And... Um, it's a small business, it's me and a partner, um, and lots of associates um, working with lots of big businesses, help them change what they do, they, and what I'm wondering is what can I do in London, um, so how can what I do and what the business could do support what you're doing in London? I was so encouraged to hear everything that's happening, and there's always more, but you know, what, how can I contribute?
0: Uh, my name is Greg, I'm a Journalism and Political Science student at, uh, from the United States. I'm here in London for the semester. One of the issues that we're running into um, in the States is the cost. Um, how do you push low-cost solutions to a lot of people who are maybe environmentalists in theory, but at the end of the day they look at the cost of hybrid vehicles, they look at the cost of the greener homes, and they see that the bottom line is coming in, is, is having an impact on that, and I can only imagine that's happening here as well. Okay. Yeah,
2: and then. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Richard from Transition Town Brixton. Um, in, in Bristol, the, um, the city drew up the regional uh, strategy uh, and they wished to implement uh, l- low carbon building regulations that were in advance of n- national. Uh, and the Department for Communities and Local Government stopped them doing that. In distinction you in, you said that you in fact uh, the mayor's plans for low carbon are in advance of nation, nationally so I wonder how you did that uh, secondly um, Sorry, yeah is there a case for is there a case for um, uh, a, a less vague um, generally normative uh, energy strategy you've got, and could it specify no combustion without CHP without district heating?
1: Not sure I that one, but okay.
2: Hi, Isabel uh, Merlin Hayward from Climate Camp London. Um, it seems that behaviour change is the buzzword. That's the thing that everyone wants to uh, to affect. But Boris Johnson only committed three million pounds to the low carbon zones and at the moment low carbon zone officers work between two and ten on a part time basis uh, as community activists. Certainly this is the case in Brixton um, and if you're going to get communities to change their behaviour these are the jobs that really need to be rolled out and they need to be properly funded. So what are you going to do about uh, finding some more money for them?
0: Okay, please just be honorable. There's queues of people who want to ask questions. Can we just stick to questions? Yeah, that girl. Yeah. And then we'll give Isabella a chance. Hiya.
2: Karen Bird. I work at the New Economics Foundation. I was just interested in your
1: um, transport plans. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the cycling revolution and what what that actually is. And uh, my other question is really about whether or not we should have any aims to have more vehicles on the roads, whether electric
0: or or otherwise Okay Wow
1: Okay Great Uh, We're doing our best to get to all the rest of you. Yeah, homes, okay, you know, we both live in homes like the one you just described. So 70% of London's homes are hard to treat. What that means is they don't have lofts, they don't have cavity walls. You can do the 10 easy measures stuff, which is why we started doing it, because at least it's something that you can do. And it does have a, you know, it's quite surprising what impact it has. Um, As you probably know, the cost of doing a home like that is you know, estimates vary. I think the Lib Dems are saying six and a half thousand pounds, you know, sort of range from five to fifteen thousand um, pounds. It doesn't really matter. The point is that the, you know, 90 plus percent of the population either doesn't have that money or doesn't want to spend that money, quite understandably. And this is why for us, you know, it's great that we've got this homes program rolling, but we always want to distinguish between here's a business model that works, that gets a high rate of take up. And the reason that we're doing that is not because it's nice to insulate 200,000 homes, which it is, but but it's because we're trying to say, here's a delivery vehicle for somebody else to come in and put in the financing that's needed to be able to get all of the homes that you were just talking about. And the only way that that can happen is, is if there's a financed upfront free solution. It doesn't matter how it works. I mean, I've got my own views, but so does everybody. But the point is that it has to happen. So either the utilities need to be told that it's gonna be part of the standing charge on the energy bill. It needs to be through your council tax. It needs to be, you know, part of the mortgage when you buy the house. It doesn't really matter, all those things work. But what's interesting is that, you know, either the utility regulation needs to change quite quickly, um, but we're certainly not seeing private sector companies coming forward voluntarily to tackle that issue, which I actually, perhaps naively, find surprising because it is a commercial opportunity. I mean, instead of selling me energy, you can sell me a very expensive piece of kit that's gonna save me energy and I'm gonna pay it back over time. I mean, those are just different ways of making money. It's not that that's not going to make you money. So the utilities, perhaps understandably, don't want to cannibalize their own existing business model, although you could imagine having two parallel business models. Um, but we've talked to people like the supermarkets, Sky, Akado, You know, people who are, have a customer relationship, are in people's homes, arguably would see this as a business opportunity. So there's a lot of interest out there, but we just haven't seen that come forward. In the meantime, what we're doing is saying, here's a way that you can reach those homes and hopefully we're going to ramp this up to a point where we don't drop off a cliff, but to a point where somebody's going to take, take the program over from us when it's got a track record. So, you know, watch this space, hopefully, and if you know anyone who's uh, commercially interested in a six billion pound investment, then uh, that'd be great. Um, uh, how, how to contribute well that 's a great question I mean um, we need to, as I said before, we need to get better at like unlocking people 's desire to do stuff um, it 's a communications issue for us we 're trying to do stuff at quite a local level, but obviously you know I was saying earlier there 's like eight million people in london it 's really hard for us to reach out to individuals and to communities is something that as a, as a regional authority is always going to be a challenge so we 've got things like the low carbon zones which are trying to tap into community engagement, the homes program, so, you know, hopefully if you can just keep an eye on what we're doing and, you know, see see what's coming forward. And the more that you can hassle your local council actually to get involved in these things because we've got a lot of programs that deliver through the local councils, because like 30 is about the maximum that we can handle. Um, so that that's a, that's a great way that you can help us, but do keep an eye on, watch the space because we're really conscious of that that issue. Um, The low-cost solutions, I mean, that goes to the point earlier, basically, you know, even 100 pounds for a lot of people, we need to create vehicles where if you don't want to spend the 100 pounds or you don't have it, there's an alternative, and it's an easy alternative that isn't like getting a second loan. I don't think those kinds of things really work. It's got to be almost invisible um, to people and and very easy to do, so that's a problem across the board, not just for homes. Bristol's a different case from us that we I mean when the GLA Act was written, we have explicit powers to produce the London plan, and we have certain planning powers that other regions simply don't have because of the nature of the greater London authority um, and you know Ken actually wrote that legislation, so he wrote in what powers he was hoping to get when he became mayor, so which was a good way to do it um so that's, we've got a quite set, different setup in London. It's quite unusual or unique in the UK governance arrangements. On the energy strategy front, I'm hoping that we're about to publish our energy strategy, so I'm hoping it's responsive to your issue. It's, it's really quite detailed and prescriptive, I guess you would say, on the, on the sort of decentralized energy and CHP front. So um, let me know if it doesn't fit the bill. Um, the low carbon zones. You know, I just want to say, you know, we, we do have this 100 million pound program, which is, which is more money than has ever been spent on these issues before in London. Low carbon zones is a new program. There's kind of two ways you could do low carbon zones. One is a zone would cost you about 50 million pounds, and that would pay for everything, including all the kit to create a low carbon zone in that area but we didn't have 40 or 50 million pounds times 10 to create a number of different zones. So we've tried to do is take a more light touch approach. People are supposed to draw in funding from other sources and we pay for the stuff that is the admin cost, those kinds of things that typically nobody wants to pay for like overhead, staffing, and all the boroughs put in bids themselves. So I'm happy to look at that particular case, but the whole basis was that the boroughs were happy with the staffing levels and they're the ones who put those proposals together. So, if you want to come and talk to me afterwards, we can look at the specifics of that setup. Because if it's not working, obviously that's not good for anybody. Um, on the on the transport side, so cycling, there's a whole range of things that we're doing. We're investing in cycling safety programs. Um, we're bringing in the uh, Central London Bike Hire Scheme, which is going to be in place from um, summer this year. Uh, Twelve what we call cycling superhighways, which are sort of ways of channeling people down particular routes partly because when you have many cyclists together you get first of all it builds confidence for people who aren't usually cyclists and you get a lot more of a road presence that's like a bus rather than like an individual cyclist there's huge amounts of um money being put into it, Um, so there's a whole range of things going on. I mean, totally agree with you about not having more vehicles on the road. We certainly don't want more more vehicles on the road, but it's really interesting. We did a piece of work when we did the cycling analysis a couple of years ago, um, saying, okay, well, what's the maximum that you could shift out of car into walking or biking, for example? And what's interesting in London is a lot of us live in central London, so outer London, you've got a lot of multi-point trips that go over really great distances where the public transport network is no way appropriate and equally cycling it would be way too far to go so you've got it is a significant issue that you know has been well recognized for a long time that even when you take the maximum shift out of car you've still got this residual quite big rump of trips that it is really genuinely very hard to imagine how you would do that trip without a car. That's not to say there aren't loads of trips that can still switch out of car. And we try and sort of encourage people to do that through a whole range of things that we do. Thank you. We've got time for one more quick round. So you're gonna
0: have to be ultra quick, yes. And then I'll go over that side. Um, Barbara Herridge, North London Waste Authority. We're a small authority and we've got probably already two or three indicators on carbon that we have to report on. Have you got any plans either to standardise on the reporting of indicators across private, public, third sector? And secondly, have you got any plans to publicise how London's doing almost like a progress update and perhaps not in carbon tonnes terms but in something that's a bit more meaningful to members of the public? Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Emily and I work for um, a West London um, local Authority. My question is about how do you incentivize private landlords um, to firstly either put up the, the funding um, for kind of installation things like that, or even if there's no cost to them, how, how do you make them care really um, so how do we act on private landlords
2: Edward Connor from Lead International. Um, apart from seeing Boris on his bicycle, I'm not seeing many positive images about uh, low carbon lifestyles. And I wonder what you are doing about creating narratives about, about sustainable lifestyles in London.
0: Last question, sorry. I'm sorry, I know there are loads of you still queuing.
2: Ed Humphreys, Transport Planning Consultant. Um, will the initiatives you've outlined achieve the carbon targets for London? And if not, how do we deal with the shortfall?
0: Okay, right.
1: About two minutes flat. As well. Okay. Um, we've actually proposed in the waste strategy that's just come out, I don't know if you've seen, but a much more carbon based approach to waste management rather than saying this technology is good and that technology is bad. Because the one thing you know about that is that two years later you'll be wrong. Um, so we're looking at a kind of life cycle carbon approach, but we're really keen to make sure that isn't yet another one of your indicators, so we are going to make sure that it aligns to one or other of the things that are already reported on. We don't really have the power to say how these things are measured. It's usually set by government, but at least we can not impose an additional burden on you. Um, and yeah, one of the things that we are looking at is how we monitor and measure London's progress. One of the big problems is carbon uh, measurement goes through the government, and we, there's a three-year lag before we find out what London's carbon emissions are. So you're sort of sitting there guessing whether your policies worked or not, and, uh, and then two years later you find out, So or three years. So we need a kind of quick and dirty solution in the meantime, so that's one of the things we're putting in place through the energy strategy. Um, private landlords is, is is a gap for us because it's a difficult thing to tap. Into. <laughs> we've done we've looked a bit at it and we still need to we still need to solve that problem or try and do something on it. We've we've explored some stuff like um, you know like a green flag scheme or something like that so that at least people who are looking to rent greener properties would at least know whether it is green or not and that might incentivize them to retrofit the property at the time of transfer. Um, But it's just been a bit difficult, and with all the other things the state agent's about to worry about it, we didn't really get anywhere, but it's a good reminder, actually. I want to pick it up again. Um, Yeah, it's a difficult question, because I think just a general issue about how you engage people on this subject, sort of without mentioning the word green, I think, actually. There's there's some every piece of research that you look at, and this audience will not be representative, and I'm not representative, but, you know, it always breaks down the same way. Twenty percent of people will not do anything green almost to be difficult, so they will not give up their SUV no matter what. Um, 20% will do the green thing even if it's quite difficult, but you've got the 60% in the middle are people who really, you know, they kind of vaguely care, but frankly, they've got a lot of other things to worry about. And And how do you inspire those people? And I don't think it's about talking about sustainability, green, or anything like that. I do think it's something around sort of aspirational messages, like and that's where sometimes, you know, the kinds of things that people are prepared to do or want to do might not be the best things from a carbon standpoint, but they have an impact, so then you just have to attach some of the boring stuff onto that as well. Um, but how you bring some of these things to life without seeming worthy, we're trying to do it in the, in the new energy strategy that we're putting out, which is things like saying to people, you know, your energy bill could actually be a check, which is that, you know, you're generating, especially with a new feed-in tariff, you're generating electricity. The utilities have spent you know, years overcharging you for your bills, now you can charge them. Those kinds of things I think are a lot more um, interesting for people and inspiring. Um, but it is, it is a challenge. I mean, if somebody had come up with a new green brand approach, you know, what, what does green mean now that isn't sort of trees and flowers and rainbows sort of thing? I think that's still a quest that people are, are on, um, so I don't know if we're going to people be the people to solve it, although maybe we will. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned that about the targets because it was something I forgot to mention. Um, basically, what's, the good news is we've looked at all of the government initiatives and commitments and things that they've said they're going to do. We've looked at all the things that we've said we're going to do, and sort of European stuff like new standards for vehicles, those kinds of things. And the net effect of that is you get really quite close to the 60% target. It's sort of in the 50% territory, if I remember right. And that's not a, you know, it's not beyond the wit of man to imagine how one might ramp up one or other of those things to get there. The problem, so that's good. So it's not as if mathematically we need to solve the problem the problem is delivery and getting the pace at the rate that's actually foreseen so for example government said by 2030 i think every home will be retrofitted but that actually has to happen and it needs to be retrofitted to the standard that we were talking about earlier not you know a light bulb here or there and it's it's just about making sure that those programs actually get up and running and i think a lot of times policymakers at all levels, and that would include us in that too, don't understand the real like, rubber hits the road. How are you actually gonna design something that that guy in that house is actually gonna take up? So that's by delivering programs ourselves, we're trying to learn from that and, and actually crack that problem ourselves. But I think it's a huge issue. So no more targets, we actually need program delivery. And I have to go back to the financing issue. But interestingly, you do you can actually get there and that you know, without any further policy intervention. So my general plea to everybody is to stop formulating policies and actually focus on what we need to do to get them to actually happen. Mm. Okay.
0: Uh, Before we finish, we just have one more little CD player exercise. (laughs) LFC is a global leader in sustainability. Those who want yes, silver. Those who want no, red. Very perceptive audience. <laughs> Hold them up. Did you get the photo? Did you get it? Uh, we just need this middle section. Thanks. Is this good or bad? Thank, thank you. Okay. Will you attend another LSE sustainability lecture? It's very deceptive if you go on the first pitch on this one. That's excellent. Um, I really would like to... Yes. I really would like to thank Isabel hugely. She's inspired you all to come to the next lecture. There are three things she said that I think are really significant. One, the world has changed, we can't go on doing things the way we did. Two, green is an easy sell, although she didn't say that in the lecture. She said it before. And she said we have to understand things from the other side. She wrapped it all around the idea that we have to actually do things on the ground. Someone after my own heart. So, young businessman, young student, old hands, Let's do. Thank you very, very much. Isabel.